Well, I want you to take a moment this morning and think of a time when you were just beside yourself hungry. Hungry. Now, that may be right now. Uh, I hope not. Maybe I reminded you with that comment of the feeling in your stomach. Think, though, of a time, though, when you were just famished, starving. Now, I want to just add a disclaimer, caveat. It's kind of hard to think about this since in our first world context, we, many of us at least, have it pretty good. Although there are people in our communities, our neighborhoods, who, who don't have it so good, who actually are starving. But this morning, for the sake of this message, I want you to picture a time in your life when you just had this feeling in your stomach that you couldn't shake. I uh, was faced with this this past weekend. Our daughter, Willa, was just having a hard time, and we didn't know what was going on with her, and starting to call the doctor and call friends of ours who are medical personnel, and, and then we sit her at the table, and Danielle gives her a muffin, and... Uh, Turns out that was the problem, that her father had neglected to feed her snack, and she was hungry. She was hungry. I want you to think of a time when you, friends, were just hungry. Maybe you had an early dinner, no snack at night, and slept in, and you're ready for breakfast. Maybe you're traveling internationally and refuse to pay the thousand dollar fee for the on-plane meal. Maybe you're fasting during Lent, here's a more spiritual example, right? And you turn feral at the scent of cheeseburgers. I don't know. (laughs) But friends, imagine that time and how it felt when you finally, finally ate. I want you to keep that feeling fresh as we turn together to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Last time I preached a couple weeks ago, we looked at Exodus chapter 14, the story of God's liberation of His people Israel from Egypt. Uh, We read about the miraculous parting of the Red Sea and God's total defeat of the Egyptian forces. Since then, the people of Israel have journeyed through the wilderness just a little bit toward the land of Canaan, Palestine. And in chapter 15, verse 24, so right before our passage, the people get thirsty and they grumble against Moses. They grumble against Moses, but they're really grumbling against God. And God gives them water. He sweetens the bitter water in the wilderness and he responds to their grumbling by providing them with water. So the people stay there for a little bit and then go a little further. And friends, that is where our passage falls in Exodus chapter 16. So Exodus 16, we're going to read a series of excerpts that you can see hopefully in your bulletin. And we'll be reading from the ESV, which is the version you can see in your pew Bible So I'll start at verse 1, and I invite you as you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word. 
They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. You may be seated. So the people of Israel were hungry, physically hungry, and they complain to Moses about it. They think that such hunger, that pit in their bellies, is the most important thing in the world, and that it could be satisfied with physical food. We see that God actually listens to their complaint and fills them with food but all for a certain purpose, friends. What I mean to say is, manna is not the end of the story. Physical bread is not the answer. This morning, I want to show you what is the answer, the true answer to a much, much deeper hunger. I think this story is so powerful and has been received and represented in such profound ways throughout history because it gestures towards something deeper, something truer, which we all experience even today. So in just a moment, we're going to walk through the passage together and then we'll explore its reception history throughout Scripture and tradition and finally, friends, we'll receive it ourselves. 
But before we do any of that, let's take a moment to pray. So would you now pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the bread that is your word. Thank you, Jesus, for promising to be with us as we gather in faith, in worship of you, as we lift up our voices, contribute our, our gifts, our time, our money. These meager offerings, Lord, you bless And in your mercy, you accept such things as worship. Lord, I feel you here with us this morning, walking up and down these aisles. Touch us, Lord. Breathe on us. Encourage us with your presence. And make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But what I want to do over the next few minutes is walk through this passage according to the excerpts that we just read, so three sections. In the first section, the first three verses, we see that Israel complains, they grumble. You see this verb in verse 24 of chapter 15, the people grumbled against Moses when they were thirsty. And that same word occurs in chapter 16, recurs throughout, and it's a key word. The people are grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. It says, they set out from Elim, which was where they were camping when the Lord had given them water, and they kept journeying toward the land of Palestine. Now, might I remind you, friends, that God has already showered plagues upon Egypt, judging Israel's enemies and saving his chosen people. He's liberated them from captivity in Egypt, has parted the Red Sea to lead them through, and drowned the Egyptian forces. He's provided water for them after they've grumbled. He's done all of this for them. And he's even also promised that he would be with them as they journey through the wilderness to the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. I say that because the grumbling that we see here is not the complaint of a child whose belly is empty and who can't communicate that to her father. Friends, this grumbling is a sign of distrust, lack of faith. God had given the people of Israel every reason known to man to trust Him. He's made promises that He's kept He's acted miraculously on their behalf just weeks before this. And so when they grumble against Moses and Aaron, they're really insulting God. They're saying, we don't trust you. We don't believe that you are going to sustain us in the wilderness as we journey toward this land. We want to go back to Egypt says in verse 3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Wouldn't it be great if we were slaves again? 
is what they say. Friends, have you ever done this? When present circumstances get difficult, you look nostalgically back at your past through rose-colored glasses. It was so great back then. It was perfect. If only we could return to those times. The people are, are preferring a life of oppression and slavery in Egypt, but with meat and bread, over a life of trust and reliance upon God in the wilderness. How do you think the God of righteousness, majesty, and justice, how would he respond to something like this? How should he respond? How does he respond? Verse 11. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Sorry, that's verse 12. Say to them, he's speaking to Moses, at twilight, what? You shall all die? Be smitten with a plague? Be judged according to this lack of trust? This infidelity? No, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. God responds to the people's petulant grumbling with grace, with provision, filling their empty stomachs so that they might know that I am the Lord, your God. In other words, this action of provision, despite their grumbling, itself communicates things about the nature of God. These actions speak to the people louder than words. And in the evening, verse 13, quail came up and covered the camp. This was a somewhat natural thing, the migration of quail in the Middle East at this time, but the Lord caused it to happen at just the right time so the people could fill their bellies with poultry, with meat. And then in the morning, there was a dew on the ground. And after the dew had faded, there was a flake-like thing covering the ground. And the people didn't know what it was. And Moses says, this is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. In response to the people's grumbling, which is not just that of a child who is hungry, but of a people who are willfully forgetting God's promises, he responds with grace provision. Well, if you turn to the last section, starting at verse 31, you'll see that this was not just a one-time thing. It's not like the people grumbled just once and God fed them just once and they never grumbled again. Friends, He fed them this way for 40, 40 years. And can't be sure of this, but I'm pretty sure the people of Israel complained again during that time. Manna again. They called the name of this substance manna. And it was like coriander seed, verse 31, white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey, honey. I will bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. They're not there yet, 
but God's already giving them honey, manna. And we see that this manna is so special as a symbol that the people are commanded to keep an omer of it. We skipped this passage, but an omer was the measure for a, a day's provision for each person, one's daily bread. They were to keep uh, an omer of manna as a memorial to commemorate God's faithfulness. So for Israelites, later and later, generations later, they could see this symbol and reflect upon God's faithfulness to their ancestors, manna. And it says in verse 35 that the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. Here the narrator tells us, clues us in on this detail, it takes 40 years for the people to get to the land of promise. As we read Exodus, we will be zoomed in to that journey, seeing it unfold. But here we're told how long it would take. For 40 years, God provided the people of Israel, the people who grumbled to His face, provided them with manna. And friends, as we'll see, this story is extremely powerful in the memory and tradition of Israel and Christianity. What I want to do now, as I have been doing throughout this series in Exodus, is trace how this story is received and represented first throughout Scripture and then by early and medieval Christians. I want us to see that trajectory so we can receive it properly as Christians today. The first text that I want to look at uh, in the Old Testament comes in the book of Deuteronomy. And you can turn there if you'd like, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy means second law, and the people have journeyed 40 years, and they're poised right on the border of Moab and Israel. They're, They're just about to enter the land, and Moses reminds them of some things. Moses is not permitted to enter the land with the people, but he gives them some guidance to orient them to life in the land long term. So he reiterates a lot of the things he says in Exodus, Leviticus, and and Numbers. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, the first few verses. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may prosper in the land. Verse 2, he says, you shall remember the the way that the Lord led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Remember these things. Verse 3, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Moses is interpreting Exodus for us in Deuteronomy 8. He's telling us that manna, physical bread, a solution to physical hunger, was never the end of the story. It was always meant to point 
to something deeper, something truer that fixes an even deeper problem. What truly sustains the human soul is not flake-like bread that tastes like honey, but is every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as we see in Exodus, those are words of promise, words of assurance, words of salvation. Human beings can gather, manna can eat quail as long as they want, but it will never fill that deep void in them that they're spending their lives trying to fill. Only a relationship of trust with God, a relationship in which you listen to His words and believe them, only that will satisfy the human soul. Well, this verse is quoted in the New Testament by none other than Jesus of Nazareth in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, and I've mentioned how this symbolizes or reenacts Israel's crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. And just like the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And as you might expect, after 40 days and 40 nights, it says that he was hungry. He was hungry. Physically hungry. He had an empty stomach in Matthew 4. And the tempter, this same figure from early Genesis, this tempter in the garden... Again, Jesus is reenacting the stories that we read in the Old Testament. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Fill your belly. Friends, this is precisely the sort of thing God does in the wilderness for Israel in Exodus. He sweetens this bitter water miraculously causes bread to rain down from heaven, quail to come? Has Moses strike a rock later on so that water gushes out? In a way, the tempter knows that Jesus is God. He knows that Jesus can do this. But he wants Jesus to think that physical hunger and physical food is really the extent of the problem. In the solution. He wants Jesus to consider that pit in his stomach as the main issue in life and to solve it with bread. But Jesus has read Deuteronomy. You could argue that he's written Deuteronomy. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How dare you try to make me think that this physical problem, this physical solution is all that there is. No, 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 no. That pit in man's soul can never be filled by bread, physical bread. And in John chapter 6, we'll see how it can be filled. So friends, this passage, John 6, is I think the most extensive 
reflection upon this story in Exodus that you'll find in all of Scripture. I wish I could spend a series exploring the connections between these texts. Might I remind you, uh, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, is identified as the Word of God. So when it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God, John is doing something intentional when he says Jesus is the Word. Keep that in mind. Well, in John 6, Jesus has just walked on water, done something miraculous in front of His disciples, but still, His disciples ask in verse 30, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jumping to verse 49, he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They did, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's what he says. This trajectory that started in Deuteronomy of thinking beyond just manna is continued in Matthew 4 in the wilderness and is fully fleshed out for us in John 6. The the, the physical hunger that Israel experienced and the physical solution God provided was, was gesturing towards something else, something deeper which we all experience, which no manna can ever satisfy. Jesus says, I am the true manna, the bread that has come down from heaven that you don't need to gather every day. Well, it's no wonder, friends, that early Christians started to write about the Passover and the Lord's Supper and communion, this meal in which followers of Jesus would actually eat bread and drink wine and would symbolize their consumption of Jesus, the true bread. You see this at the end of Matthew and the other Gospels. You see it in the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians. Ignatius of Antioch, he talks about Communion as the medicine of immortality, he says. And Melito, bishop of Sardis, compares Passover with manna and communion and the Eucharist, and we see this connection throughout history. Friends, the idea is manna was always pointing to something else 
something deeper. And so this morning, I want to ask, what are you hungry for? I'm not talking about that pit in your stomach that's solved when you eat a loaf of bread. I'm talking about that void, that pit, that incessant feeling in your soul that you just can't shake. What bread is it that you gather day after day after day? Is it affirmation, respect, recognition, a sense of being accepted or approved by others? So you find yourself gathering credentials, achievements, accolades, but in the end you find that you're still hungry. Is it longevity, health, length of days, avoiding the end at all costs? So you gather vitamins, rigid health regimens, strict safety precautions, but you're still hungry. Or is it this goal of being the perfect spouse, the perfect parent, the perfect Christian, and the pressure that goes along with that? And so you gather these disciplines, these habits, these expectations of progress toward perfection, but you find that amidst all of that, you're still hungry. What is your manna? What is your manna? We're all hungry. Deeply, spiritually hungry. And we try everything to fill our souls up. We do. But no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do, that hunger just will not go away. So is, is there a bread? Maybe a special kind of bread that will satisfy our soul's deepest hunger? Is there something out there that, that if we just get it, we'll never have to gather bread again? Well, I, for one, believe that there is. And that His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, this may sound trite and cliche to you, Jesus is the answer. Just trust in Jesus. Woo! But friends, when it really comes down to it, when you stop and take a closer look, when you see how hungry we all are, despite having more stuff than any generation in history, you'll see that Jesus, the Word of God, the bread of life, is absolutely, unequivocally the answer to our soul's deepest hunger. Can I get an amen? The Bible doesn't gesture in this way by accident. Jesus is not lying to us in John 6. 
He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, is what he says. And I know he's not talking about the bread we pass once a month at communion. He's talking about identifying one's life with his, so much so that you can say you have consumed Jesus Christ. You are what you eat, as the saying goes. As we eat organic material, it in turn becomes cells, tissue, flesh, our very selves. The same thing goes for our consumption of Jesus. As we worship Jesus, trust Jesus, imitate Jesus, learn about Jesus, His body, His heart, His mind become ours, and we're made full. Let me close with this. Receive the bread of life, the bread of Christ. Bread that you'll never, ever have to gather again. Receive the bread of Christ today and be hungry no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the bread from heaven toward which manna always pointed. The bread that never spoils, the bread that is always enough, the bread that fills that void in our soul that's always there. Help us to stop running, Lord, to stop imagining ways in which we can fill that void through other means. You are the answer. You are, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to focus, to focus on you, to push away the distractions in this world that try to cloud our vision. Help us to focus on you, Jesus, the bread of life that truly satisfies We love you, Lord, and pray that as a community we would point others to you. We love you and we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.